If you take the word of God and turn to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter number three, we'll pick up where we left off last Lord's Day. And actually, we'll pick up in chapter two, verse number 10, we'll read the same portion that we read last week, um, but the message this morning will be primarily verses five through 10 as we complete this portion of the text. If you're willing and able, we'll stand out of uh, reverence for the reading of God's Word. As I said, we'll take up our passage at chapter 2, verse 10, read to the end of chapter 3, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer once again. In the book of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 10, So the Lord spake to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, And he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent? And turn away from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. Then God saw their works, and they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Pray with me. Father, we come to you once again to ask for your help and aid. We have a simple prayer, Father. I'm your son and your spirit, and we're our great need. So we pray that you administer him to us. Father, in a mighty way. Father, you know our hearts and minds. You know mine now. You know how quick I am, how fickle my spirit is, how easily deterred, Father, and distracted that I can even be in the ministry to the saints. So, Father, we pray that you would just allow us a few moments to where we can stay our minds on you. Father, we know, regardless of the man, that our greatest need, and as the Spirit of God to operate in our hearts through the Word of God to exalt your Son that we might be transformed and eternally changed. Even now as sons and daughters of God, Father, to be renewed by the or to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, and to be transformed into the very image of your Son. Father, um, we beg you for that. We pray that if there does not exist in us a hunger and thirst, that now you'd give it. And that we'd fix our eyes on Christ and look for him, Father, in the time that we have together. And Father, what a delight it would be to you, I'm sure, that we might find him, that we might cling to him, that he might be our only hope in all that we are and all that we have. So Father, help us to do that now. Because by nature, I want to cling to myself and every other thing. Help us to cast aside, Father, many idols, any great loves that we might have, that we might love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength now, fulfilling that great commandment, and no doubt will pour out, Father, upon our neighbor. So, Father, go with us now in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. The book of Jonah, um, in so many respects, is just a phenomenal book. Chapter 3 um, is fantastic in so many ways. I'm in a manner of its own. Jonah chapter number three displays for us the power of God in such a way that really is unthinkable or un- unimaginable. And really, when you think about it, you woke up this morning in a nation that, in so many respects, would classify this country as an ungodly state. That our nation is in such a moral decline 
that seems to be progressing at such a rapid pace that it appears to be unstoppable. It's like a train that has left the station and now at full speed with the brakes out. Well, at any turn now, lead it to derail and kill everyone in it. Just in my lifetime, I've seen the entire morals of a nation change. Things that would not have been entertained 20 years ago is now the social norm, and to speak against it is considered by most to be a hate crime. And it's really an astonishing sight. Corruption seems to have infiltrated every aspect of society such that we can't even fathom how a man or a woman could remain faithful in almost any profession or context. Why? Because it's assumed now to thrive, one must embrace these newly defined social morals, and if one holds to a biblical pattern or, or to their biblical guns, they'll be cast out. It permeates politics in every branch of government. It seems so far gone that most Christians even question the fruitfulness of engaging culture or politics or our leadership at all. Now imagine, now imagine going to bed tonight, setting your alarms as usual. You've got your schedule planned for tomorrow. You wake up. You leave at dawn to engage this world, as you have for at least a decade or two or three now. Nothing's particularly special about that day. You get your coffee on the way to work, you clock in, same old, same old. You've worked a faithful day insofar as you could, and as you're leaving the break room at 4.30 to go clock out, you hear on the news as you pass by, Joe Biden is calling for a national fast. Something happened earlier in the day that provoked him to mourning. A man nobody knows seemingly coming out of nowhere at a press conference, calls, out, calls Washington, D.C. to repentance for specific sins beginning at the top all the way to the bottom. And this has no doubt happened in different forms at different times, and it generally leads to an extricating of that person from the vicinity. Why? Because they're deemed a lunatic. But maybe this time someone says, no, let him speak. And for reasons truly unbeknownst to any, the whole room is captivated. Not that everyone's universally engaged, but in captivating the few in power, all are captivated by their influence. And while many think they just entertained him in his momentary lunacy, the staff later announces that they're all fasting and that they're praying because of something that he said. And an urgent message is sent out calling on all American residents to examine themselves, to repent, to cry out to their God. And business on Capitol Hill, as usual, stops indefinitely. Chances are, you've never even thought about that. Because that is an impossibility to us. It seems in every respect, unimaginable considering the circumstances. Even at the name Joe Biden, many of you wanted to laugh. And because of the state of his leadership... And the state of our nation, such to the point that it doesn't even cross our minds. It's not even a category in which we can logically understand. But that's what happened in Nineveh. Nineveh is a godless city in so many respects. Even the most godless in some respects. So ungodly that God tells us in chapter number one in their, that their wickedness, seemingly in contrast to all other nations at that time, was of such a sort that it come to the very face of God. Now that doesn't mean that it wasn't um, in his presence before or that he didn't know what they were doing prior to that, but that his patience and long suffering had run out, that the evil contained within the nation or within the city particularly of Nineveh was of such a great um, manner and of such a certain sort that, that, that justice, that the justice of God was demanded. It no doubt filled the palace, it no doubt um, consumed the politics, it no doubt had crept into the homes, not, not in every single home, I imagine, but in most. It's likely very much like America. There is still a moral temperature in the midst of even godless leadership. Men and women who still wake up and seek to provide for their families and render a good day's work. I imagine that it was like that in Nineveh that day. 
Farmers arose to go to the fields. Merchants hit the streets. Mothers arose early to prepare for their families for that day. Began kneading bread, gathering the milk, the bleeding of the sheep and the ox. Upon the dawn of that day um, began to sound. Philosophers were ready to engage with the rhetoric. Politicians had their agenda. The king was ready to go. And by the end of the day, you have an entire city in upheaval. From the king to the peasant. Why? Because of one man and one message. And in it, we see the largeness of God's heart. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. That which the nation of Israel was so quick to forget, God had not. And what we saw in a microcosm aboard that ship in chapter number 1 is those pagan sailors come to faith. We see in this passage the fruit of God's activity among possibly the most evil of people. And in that we see the mercy and the heart of God. And now one question that always comes up when you read this passage is, was Nineveh truly converted? You can read all the commentators you want. You can listen to all the sermons that you want. You'll find solid men on both sides. But I'm going to argue this morning that my position is that it was a true work of God in salvation. And while I find the case for that here in this text, I'm even more compelled by Christ's revelation in Matthew chapter 12. And let me just qualify that with saying I don't believe that it was necessarily, that it was at all universal conversion. I don't believe that 100% of the people in Nineveh were saved. But I do believe that it took a grip of such a sort that, that many were, that it would cause the nation to turn. So there was such an influence upon particular people and within that nation that it seems to be a true spirit-wrought repentance that would work the work of God in them and the fruit of it would be a turning from their evil works. And as I said, I think that that's arguable from the passage, but I think it's even more arguable if you read Matthew chapter 12 and verse 41, which is Christ's commentary on this very passage. He says, quote, The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here that Jesus places the Ninevites in a position of judgment over the nation because they quote repented at what at the preaching of Jonah that the word of God had went forth in such a way uh, that God was active in the soul of those men and women and that nation as a whole such that they would turn. And God will use that in the lives of the nation of Israel um, because they wouldn't. And the contrast is going to be great. That they turned with such a meager message from a man who did not even desire their conversion. Um, and, all, and you have light immeasurable coming forth like the noonday sun. And you will not see it. Um, that Nineveh stands in rebuke over them and in condemnation to them. Why? Because on that day, they repented. So today in verse number 5, I want to give to you the conversion of the Ninevites. And then in verse 10, we'll see just very briefly the character of God. So just two points today. The conversion, number one, the conversion of the Ninevites. You'll remember in verse number 4 that Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And he cried out and said this, this message, quote, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God. And you'll remember that in this part of the book, the disobedient prophet has been turned from his course of disobedience by, by natural means, supernaturally ordered by God. You'll remember that Jonah was set against God, that he's given this commission to go for God to a godless nation, particularly a rebellious city, and that he is deterred from that. He's, and he deters from that by the um, intents of his own heart. He calculates disobedience, um, and God calculates um, his return. And in that calculation, God supernaturally prepares um, these natural means, a storm that he would hurl at Jonah, and a whale that would consume him. 
Um, in his seeming repentance, and that after that prayer in chapter number two, he's vomited out there upon the um, the shore. Jonah arises, and as we talked last week in verses one through four, we see somewhat of a recommission and a conformity to God's word. The Jonah rises, a man that's unknown to Nineveh. Likely a strange appearance as he bears the marks of a disheveled man, possibly fresh wounds from the fish or the storm, pale white complexion, clothes torn or unkempt, and as he's just spent three days in the belly of a great fish. He walks alone into that city with nobody. He has nothing. All of his belongings are there either in the sea or in the well. Maybe he slept, maybe not. We don't know how far he was, where the shore is, what shore it is at all. And he immediately gets up, heads that way, no questions asked, no, negotiation, no negotiations with God. And as he enters the boundaries of that city, he begins to proclaim a message. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he's clearly proclaiming a message of judgment upon Nineveh. And that's what's, mean, that's what's meant by the word overthrown there in the New King James it's actually the very same word that's used in Genesis 19, verse 25, to speak about Sodom and Gomorrah being overthrown. That this is a message of judgment, not just partial judgment, and not just chastisement, but a pronouncement of total destruction of everything that would mark the city of Nineveh. And so he goes, he goes, he enters into that city, a first day's walk, and begins immediately to proclaim that message, the very message that God had given him. When you read Christians, you listen to sermons, there's a lot of debate over the three-day three journey in extent and just the one day in. Um, I'm not going to get into all of that simply to say that it seems that Jonah includes that to underscore the immediacy um, and the, the um, swiftness of Jonah to proclaim this message to as many people as he possibly could. And that's going to also give us the, the um, right response of marveling at such a great activity. Why? Because it shouldn't have happened that way. Right? He has a relative small amount of time with a very short message, and yet it takes grip upon the hearts of Nineveh in, in the most magnificent way. And again, that's the contrast with Israel. Israel, who have been God's people for generations... Um, and yet in all the light, and they have the very Christ before them, and they re rebel against it all, even murdering the Christ. That's why Nineveh will stand up in judgment and condemn you. So there is this immediacy, this swiftness to the message um, that is given. And you will see, again, as Christ articulates to us, you will see as a result of the faithfulness of this man, regardless of his lack of understanding or even his desire to be fully obedient, you will see God's activity in the souls of these men and in this nation as a whole in the most remarkable way. First thing that we see in the repentance of the Nineveh or the Ninevites um, is, number one, the faith that they have in God now. The faith now that they have in God. Verse number five, we see that as a result of the preaching of that message, these words. So the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. Believe here literally means to stand firm, to be certain, to believe, to trust in. It's also the word that forms the basis of the very word amen. Amen is a word that means so be it. In the text of Scripture, whenever we say that at the end of a song or at the end of a prayer or at the, after, after a message or in the middle of the word and we say amen, it is our declaration that, that you can be certain of that. We believe that. We rest in that. It's the very word that God would use of the, of the nation of Israel over and over and over again with the same type of message. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 31, Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. They believed God. And were blessed because of it. And it really is an astonishing account. I mean, what we have here is a strange unknown man. No one knows the guy. 
According to his appearance and message, he'd probably be thrown out of the gates, at least mocked, because he seems like a raving lunatic. He comes with no authority. He performs no miracles. He has no time to establish any credibility with the people. He bears no insignia. He brings no scroll to say that he comes as a representative of any country, let alone the nation of Israel. There's no record that he appoints to any existing power, no means that would actually fulfill what he's saying. There's no world power greater than Assyria that he could point to and say, um, 40 days, they're coming for you, and yet they believed God. In other words, the people of Nineveh, against all odds and logic, accredit the words of Jonah as being nothing less than the very words of God. And this, again, would have been unusual. Extremely unusual. And again, the parallel or the stark contrast would be with Sodom and Gomorrah. Judgment is pronounced to both cities. Angels come to Lot in Genesis chapter number 19 and announce. Lot goes then to his sons in Genesis 19 and says these, and Genesis says these words. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who married his daughters and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. They, they, they gave no credibility to the message. And not only did they not fall upon deaf ears, but hardened ones. Um, the word they're joking in the New King James could be translated mocked. And maybe your translation does. They laughed. They made, it could literally be translated, they made sport of it, the word means. And in both instances, a man brings a message from God, that of judgment, not only judgment, but judgment upon a collective group of people, a city in one, two cities in another, one receives the message and the other would not. One would receive it as from God and one would receive it as from man. And in believing this word, they immediately respond. As the old saints would put it, they responded by doing business with God in Jonah, in Jonah chapter number 3. Why? Because the message that they believed, they didn't believe simply generally. They didn't mean only factually. They believed God theologically and personally. And what I mean by that is, is that you can, you, can, you can believe and not believe. You can believe in somewhat of a, a mental, a human, um, to where you could actually believe the facts. Nineveh could have believed the facts that day. Um, they could have believed Jonah in the sense of, um, this is a true reality. Now, we need to get together, put our political minds together, gather all the philosophers, and see how in the world we can get out of this judgment. But that's not the nature of the text at all. They actually believe it very theologically and personally. They believe Jonah's message was about God and who they were. They're being gripped with the reality that this is the way that it is because of their evil ways. This is almost a very, it is a parallel with chapter 1 in the pagans in the storm. They see in Jonah's message that God's the author and that their true condition and certainty is doom. And it's because of their sins. They believe that they're God's creatures, that they're accountable to Him, that they're sinners. And the evil hearts and hands have provoked the very wrath of God and that they were guilty and justly condemned. Verse number 9. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from His fierce anger so that we may not perish? Why? Because in verse number 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. That everything else to follow was a result of the faith that they had in God. They believed the message. Not Jonah. They believed Jonah. But the text doesn't say that Jonah came with a credible case. We sat down and talked about it for hours, and it just we logically concluded that the most um, that the most that the future would dictate that this is the most likely scenario. No, it says that Jonah came, Jonah preached, and they believed God. That they looked past the messenger and they heard the word of God, and the word of God was activated in their soul. The Spirit wrought in them faith in God, and thus they believed. And in that believing, they now see their sins against the holy God. That, that I'm convinced that it is true repentance. First, because of the faith that they have in God. They believed God. And second, because that belief in God actually caused them to address their sins against God. Belief in Jonah's message would provoke them in a brokenness over their sin. And turning from their evil ways. 
Because that was the substance of Jonah's message. There was an indictment, I'm convinced, in verse number 8 of specific sins. He gave them a rationale for the indictment of the judgment. He called upon them to recognize their accountability to God. And you can see that in the text. And that the, 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 the address of sin in their lives against a holy God was manifested not only outwardly but inwardly. Verse number 8, it was addressed inwardly. How, how, how do we argue that? Because the king comes and the king actually calls them to cry out to God. He says, cry mightily to God. And the emphasis of the king doesn't fall merely upon external behaviors. We're going to talk about external behaviors in just a moment. We'll talk about the fruit of the hands because of the, of the uh, nature of the hearts. Um, but what you see in the nation of Nineveh, and in the king particularly, is not just a mere external approbation of right things that he thinks will appease a holy God, such that when God looks down men, we need to have everything in order. No, there is, a, there is a, an, an emphatic pronouncement of every individual within that nation to cry out mightily to God. That from the soul, the word cry itself is emphatic. But there is the modifier, there's mightily, even to the point that the word mightily can be translated throughout the scriptures as with force or with violence. And what he's going to argue, or even from that word, is that you and I, knowing what violence is and taking what we have, take heaven by storm. Cry out to God and do it with all that you have and all that you are. There is this emphatic pronouncement that all of us, myself included, we must cry out to God from the king down to the lowest. Verse number six, the king is engaged in this repentant activity. Then the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and in ashes. You see that, that this repentance that led to, to um, a, a proclamation that man needed to do um, deal with God and with the particular sins and with everyone in particular. Everyone was included. No one was barred from this, even the king. The king, who is a symbol of royalty and wealth. The king, um, who, is the, who, who in those days would have had unilateral ultimate authority to do as he pleases. He was the law. And no doubt he was the law in Assyria, or at least in the, the nation of, or the, the city of Nineveh here. And he would lay aside his robe and step down from his throne. And that would indicate that he was in that moment forfeiting his throne unworthy to be king. There's no doubt an expression of humility, um, if not true repentance. That's what it says, that he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, which would have indicated uh, in those days, the greater the robe, the greater wealth. The greater the robe, the more ornamental that it was among the kings and in the nation, the greater his power and the greater his authority. And what does he do? Because he hears the word, it is proclaimed to him. He, he lays aside the robe, steps off of his throne and calls out to the nation and seeks to influence and provoke those under his care. Why? Because because he believed the message. He believed the message. And the message was, 40 days, judgment will come. He interprets that as, turn everyone from his evil way. And he calls the nation to turn from their violence in verse number 8, the violence that is in their hands. But this too leads to an external expression, verse number 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, Put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, this would be a consequence or a, a, an effect of trusting in God. And they would declare fast. They would put on sackcloth. This was a common means in the ancient world of expressing grief, expressing humility, penitence. Um, it would be throughout the scriptures what God would signify as, as the hallmarks of true, true repentance. It doesn't necessitate true repentance. But in a heart that's right with God, oftentimes what would happen is, is that it would lead to that naturally. Um, that that, that the, the Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel, and even within the Near East, these were an expressive people. We're not. We're not. For whatever reason, you know, we're, we're, we're stoics compared. 
You know, we're afraid to express emotion. We're afraid to let anyone... In our individualistic type of culture, we're willing to, we're willing to go to great lengths to protect our, our image and to protect this, this and that, to make sure that everyone thinks that we have it all together. But the nation of Israel and the Near Eastern culture was not like that at all. You know, they had, they had within the culture um, practices that would signify... When, when they were grieving. I mean, you'd walk past the door and you would know it. There would be wailing and gnashing of teeth. They would come out and have sackcloth and ashes upon them. The sackcloth would be that which was made from goat's hair. And it was, it was, where, it was, it was to symbolize the rejection of earthly comforts and pleasures. That they desired for everyone to know that they were, that they were truly um, um, in grief. Even to the point that it would affect their beasts. Verse number 7. And he caused it proclaimed to be published throughout Nineveh by the decree of his king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat and drink water. That even the brute creatures that were mentioned a moment ago in the text of Job, these men, this nation, this king would be so affected on the inside that it would pour out even to those under his influence and he would recognize it even to what we would say are the brute creatures of the world. Why? It very well could be because there was a recognition that our sin affects not only ourselves but one, but, and one another, but also the land, the world. Our sin affects not only one another, but the creatures, the world all around us. Our sin was affected the world. The world fell with us. Thistles and thorns, blood and death, all entered into the garden that day. And what we continue to see is the continual effects of a sinful creation that needs to be redeemed. Thus, in Romans chapter number 8, creation groans and labors with birth pains until that great day when it too will be redeemed in all of its fullness. That this was an expression of repentance such that they recognized that what they were doing, the violence that was on their hands, the sin that they had with a holy God was personal, yes, initially, but two, that, that, that their sin was affected the entire cosmos and the land. And that if it was going to be destroyed, it would not only be every man, woman, and child, but it would also be all of the beasts and the land would be utterly decimated. That this was the reality that they had come to. That they understood the gravity and the weight of their sin such that before God they, they understood um, the, the consequences of it and it would lead them to consecrate fast, to call upon all the nation, um, to manifest their repentance to a holy God. Why? Because of the violence of their hands from the greatest of them all the way to the least. No class or section of Ninevite society would be exempt from the need to humble themselves before a holy God. And not only that, but do we see, we see this faith in God. Not only do we see this dealing of, of sin with God, but we also see born out of that faith in God, I'm going to argue a hope in God. A hope in God. And particularly a hope for mercy. Verse 8 and 9, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from his violence in his hand. Who can tell if God will turn and relent? Who can tell? And one question would be, if they do have hope in God, that he'll be merciful. One question would be, why? Commentators love to spill pages and pages and volumes of ink on this as well. Um... We know why. We know why God would, why they could have hope in God. But why would they? And why do they? What in Jonah's message actually provokes it? That is, that God might relent and be merciful. That God might repent of his judgment, as the King James says. And he said, how do, how do, how do you know that they hope in God? Because, because in their activity, they look at one another. The king looks down and says, Let's do this because who knows? Who knows? I think the ESV says, who knows what God may do in response to this? Who knows? Seek the Lord, pray to Him, examine your hearts, turn from your sin, because who knows? And the insinuation is, is that He might, therefore do. 
There's little glimmer of hope. But it's there. Because, because there's, and the reason to question is because there's no record in Jonah's message that there was a promise of God turning from his judgment. It is an inference at best. Jonah's message was 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's it. There's no 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown, therefore turn and God will relent. It seems to be a message of judgment and a message of judgment alone. Yet when they come to pray and seek the Lord, there is a hopeful pleading that God might be merciful. See, where does it come from? I'm going to argue, I'm going to give you a couple suggestions. Number one, I'm going to argue that it comes from the preaching of Jonah and that message that he cried out. 40 days. 40 days. And maybe when they heard 40 days, there was a little glimmer of hope. If doom was certain after all, why does God even say 40 days? Why doesn't judgment come immediately? Why does God bring a message at all? Why send a prophet? If the ultimate desire of this God was to pour out unbridled wrath and there was no desire in him for them to turn or for anything to change, then why wouldn't he simply stay quiet, silence the heavens, give no warning, and send judgment like a thief in the night, like nations have risen and fallen in days past and days since? Because it's not God's desire. Jonah knows the character of God. We understand that from chapter 4 when he continues to wrestle with God, saying, God, I knew you would do this. And I knew you'd do it with a message of judgment. And buried within that message of judgment is a message of hope. He knew God would relent. He knew that this was the purpose of the message. He knew that in the, in the message of 40 days was a component of mercy and grace. And that, 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 that he was afraid of that. It was contained within the message. And can I, I want to argue today. That in every message of judgment from God, there is a message of hope. That it is inherent in it. And I know that that goes against what is popularly believed by skeptics, atheists, and most Christians. But what you see there is somewhat of, a, of a, the application of a principle in Jeremiah chapter number 18 which some have argued is somewhat of a commentary on Jonah. In Jeremiah 18 and verse number 5, you read these words to the nation of Israel. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord. So God's saying, look guys, I can do with you what I want to do. They're contending with him, and um, they're arguing with him, they're murmuring against him, and God speaks. And he says, like, I can do what I want. And when people read this idea or concept of a potter in his clay, they, they look at this as somewhat of an um, apathetic, indifferent, sovereign God who will just do as he pleases regardless of humanity. But in this position, he actually argues that, that he's the potter. And like he does oftentimes, he's going to argue that he can have mercy upon whom he desires to have mercy. So he says, oh, house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look. As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning its kingdom to pluck it up, to pull it down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight, so that it would not, so that it does not diso, that does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. And what he's saying is, he's saying that any nation that I, that rises up, I'm I'm like the the potter, and it is the clay. And if I want to um, extend mercy to it, I can. If I want to destroy it, I can. But know this. That if any nation turns from its evil ways, this is what I will do. I will extend mercy. And what he's doing is he's pronouncing grace and mercy to the nation of Israel, but at the same time, judgment. And in verse number 11, he then turns and makes it applicable and applies this principle to the nation of Israel. And he says, now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord. Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, every one of you, from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. And you know what they said, verse 12? 
That is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans. And we will everyone obey the dictates of his evil heart. And you see this principle that God has laid out to the nations and that contained within that message of destruction lies a message of hope. And in 40 days, it seems that the nation of Assyria or the, 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 the city of Nineveh and the king took it very seriously and, 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 and had great hope that in those 40 days that, that if they would, would, would halt the rebellion and turn to this God, that God may relent. If God, who knows? Is the idea. And number two, not only would they could they have concluded that 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 there was mercy in this God because of the message, but also because of the man. Jonah, as we argued last week, became a sign to the Ninevites. I'm I'm convinced that Jonah himself was a sign. That yes, the preaching was a sign, but two, that the man was a sign. That he was in some sense God's. Um, amen to the message in the messenger. And that Jonah, as he presents himself there to those people, I'm convinced, again, you can disagree with this. Maybe you take the position, and that's fine, that all he said was, yet 40 days and none of us shall be overthrown, and that he hunkered down and held, withheld everything else. And that's enough for God to, to save a, an entire people, right? Like the word of God could have taken root such that it provoked them to the creator. That's fine. I mean, I'm convinced that being that sign, that, that, that this was the substance of the message and that Jonah actually encountered more and that Jonah stood as a sign as Jesus Christ did to the unbelieving world as he comes out of that tomb three nights and three days in the belly of the earth, that Jonah too stood as a sign of the miraculous work of God and the mercy and the grace of God to them. That Jonah's life and story as he would have conveyed at least a portion of it to them. They would learn something of the anger of God against Jonah. They would learn something of Jonah's disobedience to that God. And they would learn something of the pursuit of God for Jonah, even in the belly of a fish. And they too would learn something of Jonah from his pleading out with God. They would learn something of Jonah, of the mercy and the grace of God. And they may think, as they're provoked in their minds, as Jonah gives credence to the message, he stands as a sign before them and a testimony of God's mercy and grace that maybe they thought, and maybe God will have grace and mercy upon me as well. Have you ever looked into someone's life And they just testify of the mercy and the grace of God in such a way that it makes you long for that. And that they, they communicate to you how God has just been so merciful and gracious, how you were just a rebellious sinner in such a mighty way. And it was it is testified in this and this and this and this and that God in His grace just pulled you like a, fi like a, like a, like a brand out of the fire and saved you and continues to pour out and lavish grace upon you day in and day out, even in your, even in your continued state of fallenness. And make you just see the grace of God in some way. Some way they are a signpost to the grace of God. And it just draws in out of you this desire for that blessing upon your life. The truth is proclaimed. It had been preached to you in, in days former. You had sat through Sunday school and heard of this grace. You had sat through, through this or that. You know, grandparents just, just driving home the grace of God and the mercy of God. And it just made no sense to you until that moment where you're at the end of yourself. You're in your weakest moment. And you sit before a faithful uh, man or a faithful woman of God. And they, they just proclaim to you the grace of God. And it's applied to your heart in such a way that God just... just can, convicts you and even maybe converts your soul. Why? Because that, 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 that proclamation of truth that has rested dead upon your conscience for decades now comes alive as God signifies that truth, gives it credibility um, even before your eyes with a, with, with, with a faithful testimony. Like God can do that. And it's not the faithful testimony converting anything. 
or anyone. It's the word of God now that God takes that, 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 that testimony as somewhat of a canvas or a vessel to communicate. It's like taking, taking water from this destination down here. We've got to communicate it in some way and God uses all sorts of means. And in this mean, And in this instance, God would use this man Jonah, a vessel who should not have been used at all. But God extends great mercy and grace, and it may well have been that very mercy and grace that gives the Ninevites a hunger and a thirst as, as his life and testimony, the mercy and grace that God had given to him gives credence to the message that he's proclaiming. Men, we've got to, you, you must believe this man. You must believe this man. And that God uses, again, regardless. God uses the word of God, uh, active in the soul of a man, to bring them to the end of themselves. And some, for some reason, something happened in their souls that they might give, that they might grip hope. That faith produced in them a hope that God's character would be of such a sort that He would um, bring mercy upon them. And then, and in that hope, it caused them to pursue God. In obedience and in faithfulness, we must deal with our sin. We must not put on the sackcloth and ashes just so that we may appease this God as He looks from the heavens. But as He looks in our hearts, let Him know that we are pursuing Him that all, with all that we have, that we might have hope that He will relent. And in it, you see God's character very quickly. And I say quickly because next time that we address this, we'll see it even more so in chapter 4. So I just want to make a couple of comments. That in God's character, God's character is manifold. You know, there is just this, this inexhaustible reality that regardless of how hard we try and how far we dig and how long we trek, that we're never going to be able to plumb the depths of the very character and nature of God. Um, but at the same time, we can revel in the communication that he has given us concerning himself. And yes, God has without a doubt in the book of Jonah shown us a God who is angry with sin. He has shown us a God who will deal with a fierceness that is unparalleled with even the kings of the earth. You want to talk about violence? Take your eyes off of Assyria and look to God because his violence against sin will one day culminate. These are just small expressions in Sodom and Gomorrah and what will happen to Assyria and what happened to Israel um, all throughout its generations and in 70 AD. This is just a small picture of what God will do um, to those who continue in their rebellion against God as, as His creation and countable unto Him and with a gift of life and the opportunity to worship and they take it and just, just, just destroy it with pride and arrogance, and live out their lives uh, with idolatry and heaping up to themselves the desires of their own hearts. One day, they will stand before God, and Sodom and Gomorrah will look like child's play. Assyria will not stand the test of time. And as horrible as that seems, I give you that display to say that, that, that it pales in comparison really to the Grace and mercy of God that's presented upon the pages of Scripture. Not to say that one is greater than the other. Um, but overwhelmingly, I'm convinced that God communicates to us through these books. And even in the judgment is a message of hope. It's a message to come. It, why? Because God delights in the salvation of His people. Thus, when they turn, according to Je Jeremiah chapter 18 and according to Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 10, then God saw their works and they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that He had said He would bring upon them. And He did not do it. And again, commentators, when they come to this portion of Scripture, spill volumes of ink on things that I just think, man, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> I mean, they, they, they give a 45-minute dissertation within a sermon as to you know, why this can't mean what it means and why it means uh, something other than what it seems that it means. 
And what we have to recognize that when we come to the scripture is that, yes, God, God is high and lofty and he is sovereign and he controls all things. And that the end is, is laid out from the very beginning um, and, and a whole host of other attributes that we can't understand in all of its fullness. Um, yet at the same time, God communicates with us in such a way. Calvin calls it baby talk. He comes alongside and he speaks to us in our own language. Why? Because he desires for us to know something about him. He wants you to know something this morning about himself. What we can do is we can overthink a lot of things. and We can get lost in a lot of um, rhetoric and communication and this and that and get lost in the very character and nature of God. And there's a right place for that. And let's do that after the sermon. You know, if you want to go down those rabbit trails and talk about how the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man and how the justice of God and the grace of God, how it all balances out, I'll be happy to, to have those conversations. But what I don't want you to lose in the midst of those conversations is what God desires to communicate about himself to us. And what God desires to communicate about to us is, is in this passage, again, the largeness of God's heart and the delight that he has in those who come to Him. That, that He is too, yes, an angry God at sin, but He too is a merciful and a gracious God ready to receive any and everyone that will come to Him. Now we can get lost in the mechanics of that and how that is supposed to happen and what's the right path and, 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 and the message and a whole host of other things. But let us not get lost in the reality this morning that there is a delight in God so when those who come to him come, therefore he argues, come, all you that labor are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The text says that God saw their works. Does that mean that God didn't see their works before? No. God is particularly trying to communicate to the hearers and to the readers this morning that God looks especially when the message is proclaimed and preached, when the ministry of the kingdom is going forth, God particularly, especially in words that we can't communicate, looks upon those moments and finds favor in those who turn from their evil way and turn to God. That there was something special, seemingly, about their activity that day. That yes, God looks at everything. God sees, He knows the secrets of men's hearts. He knows what's going on in Washington, D.C. this morning. He knows all the men, women, and children of this world. There's not one iota that is kept from God today. Yet it is in moments like these that He seemingly looks eagerly upon those who receive His message. That God particularly dwells with His people. Even the New Testament argues that yes, Jesus Christ is king over all the earth, but he, but he specially dwells with his people amidst the saints. He is specially, a present, specially present among the bread and the cup as he shares spiritually and communes with his people. He is specially there in the midst of two or three who are gathered in his name and agree on this one thing, that God takes great delight and comfort being with his people and communing with them in special ways. And on that day, Assyrians were included in that gathering. That he looked upon their works, took great favor and delight and joy in their turning from their evil way and turning to the true and the living God. And as a result of that, God seemingly responds to them and to their communion with him by relenting of that great disaster. That yes, God is angry with sin and he's angry with the wicked every day. Yet at the same time, he delights wholeheartedly in the coming of his creatures to God. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse number 10. But he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You talk to some reformed guys, you talk to some sovereign grace guys, and it's almost like he's taking delight today and just casting men and women into hell. And he's going to take great delight on that great day um, as he stands before the world and the nations are parsed out. And it's just like he's going to be a great smile upon his face as they communicate the pleasure of God. I, I don't know what all of this means. Um, 
But I do know that Ezekiel 33, I take upon face value, he does not delight or take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And that will be, yes, a day in which justice will be administered and he will be satisfied in what he needs to do. And judgment will not be skirted around, but that, that, judge, but that justice that fell upon Christ for the sinner's sake, for you and I, for Assyria and all who would believe, um, will be fully recognized on that great day, and it will be filled with hope and delight. And that's what Jesus communicates in the parables that he gives. He communicates the largeness of his heart in the lost coin. In the parable of the, um, the prodigal son. If you were to turn to Luke chapter number 15, we'll finish with this. You would read of those great parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son. And you would read these words. Then the, all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which, he, which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be no more joy in heaven, or there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need none. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, uh, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Where does the joy come from? Where does it originate? I used to think that the angels were the ones who would be rejoicing or the people of God who would be rejoicing. But, 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 but I'm convinced today that, that, as the son, that as the father receives the son in the parable of the lost son, he stands there with arms wide open, ready to receive all who will come to him and that, that it is the one who finds them that, that rejoices and, and brings others into it, right? That's what he says. And says, when he comes home in verse number six, he calls together his friends. He, he who found it, the father, the, 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 the shepherd who found the lost sheep, the, the, par- the woman that finds the coin, she's the one, the father who brings the son, he's the one that throws the celebration. He's the one that brings the other son. He's the one that says, bring the fatted calf. He's the one that throws the party as it were. That there is a delight in God when men come to Himself. That yes, there may be a message of judgment this morning. And that we may preach it wholeheartedly and with ultimate passion for sinners. Why? Because we believe it's a reality. But, But know that buried within that message is a message of hope. That today... That if you are without Christ, know that 40 days and the judgment will come. Not literally, but if you are here, then you have been given more time in this world that God is patient and long-suffering with you. Why? Not so that He can can dry out more kindling wood and firewood for hell, but so that you might come. And that when you come, there is joy in the heavens and there ought to be joy on this earth as God throws a celebration over one sinner that repents. That that's the character of God. That yes, He is a a just God. And yes, He will satisfy His justice upon the wicked on that great day. But know that His greater delight, if we can communicate it in terms that we can understand, His great pleasure is to receive the saints, to receive sinners to Himself. Therefore, He calls to all who are out there, uh, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Know that there is rest to be found in Christ today. And that's what we see in the the book of Jonah. We see the large-heartedness of God. We see that His mercy and grace extends to the nations, to the ends of the earth, even to the most unspeakable of people, those whom we might count, uh, discount today of even being saved. So this morning, I would just ask you, do you see the largeness of God's heart towards you? If so, be encouraged. 
Be encouraged that the activity of God, that the word of God can go forth with such power that you this morning can carry it to the ends of the earth and know that it will not return void and that even a small meager message can provoke by the power of God in someone a hope in God that they might seek after him and that he and that when they do, he will receive them unto himself, even from the greatest of us to the least of us. Be encouraged to pray. For the lost today. Be encouraged to pray for your community today. Be encouraged as our brother Robert prayed earlier for our leaders. And not only be encouraged, but believe in faith that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. That God is able to save unto the uttermost. And if you're lost today, be convicted. And be saved. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22, I read once again as God says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And with such a glimmer of hope there on that day, the Assyrians gripped to the reality of God such that he would continue to draw them himself to him. But I, 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 I beg you today, that you would look to God, not only in Isaiah 42, but, but as he says, look to me, we do it from a new covenant perspective. And not only do you not have a mere glimmer of hope in a meager message, but today you sit in the context of, 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 of a, a nation, a community, and even a service this morning as you hold a Bible in your hand or it's there at your feet that you not only have a glimmer of light, but it is as if this morning you are sitting on the sun um, be, be, with light immeasurable. We stand post the cross. We stand since he died, was buried and resurrected again. That you have the full presentation of the gospel today that even the Assyrians did not have. That I am afraid that as Israel stands in judgment. Why? Because they had light immeasurable. That today we will stand in even greater judgment. And for those who reject Christ. Why? Because he has presented himself in a way that is unmistakable. And this morning he presents himself to you in a way that is unmistakable. You were created for his purposes. You have rebelled against that with the designs of your own heart. They may not be as bad as Hitler, but unrestrained in your heart they would be. And that it is time for you to, to halt your rebellion against God and to turn to Him in Christ. Christ gave His life, a ransom on that cross for sinners like us that He might bring out of every nation, tribe, and tongue a people for Himself. And Christ deserves it this morning and it will be the most worthwhile and delightful and pleasurable uh, pursuit of your entire life. And he, I pray that he draws you to himself. And as he's drawing to you, I beg you to come. He commands every man everywhere to repent. Therefore, this morning, repent. Be heart engaged. Believe in the message. Nothing that I have said inherently, but what God has said as the word has been faithfully proclaimed. Believe the message. Deal with your sin with God. Hope in him that you might pursue him and know that when you come, he will in no wise cast you out. That is the promise of God this morning to all. And if you're all saved, revel in that reality that you can this day have ultimate hope in God and particularly hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you as we've labored, Father, to be faithful. And um, in that, Lord, we still question. Question, Father, and that we've ever rendered any service to you that's worthy of your name. Yet at the same time, we recognize that that's exactly why we need Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would do with our time together as... Um, seemingly insignificant as it may be, we know that with a meager message and that with a meager man, you can accomplish eternal things. So, Father, we take great hope that you're with us today and that your son walks among the candlesticks 
He's present with his people. And that as his word goes forth, you're able to take it to places, Father, that we can't go. Even in my own heart, Father, every Sunday, every Lord's Day is a humbling experience. As I know I have to lean wholly upon you because I cannot accomplish it myself. Father, we pray that you would do the work that only you can. That you would take your word, Father, places that only you can go. And that you would give life, Father, and life forevermore to those who don't have it. And to those who do, Father, we pray that you would strengthen their hearts, Father, for the journey this week. That they would have faith in God. That they would have hope in God. That others may look in and see and wonder at the mercy and grace of God. And even be forever changed as a result of it. Father, may the message go forth with power. Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved, for I am God. May even that expression this morning take root in a little one's heart, take root, Father, in a man or a woman, such that they may know you, they may have life and have it more abundantly. Father, we commend this time to you now and pray that you'll go with us into the fellowship time and that you'll use it to your honor and glory as we encourage and exhort one another in the faith um, and provoke one another, Father, to love and to good works. And Father, we praise you for all that you will accomplish, not only now, um, but Father, um, throughout the rest of this week, we commend it to you in Christ's name. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing. Number 391. Let us just do a verse. 391, come ye sinners.